You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Bracha. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim Irakadish. Sam, it's been a long time, um, and I don't know, I've got a lot of things bubbling in my head, and I know that uh, I'm just ready to present them to you, but here's something that that I think is sort of something that both of us were witnesses to, or at least in a way, spectators to, how things have changed in the uh, in the United States and throughout the world from, I would say, 1950 on, in, in ways that your Rebbeim and people that you studied didn't even perhaps conceive could happen. And that is that what we now call you know, streaming social media, it, are, it really started uh, the convenience of being able in the 1950s to be able to sit home and allow images, programs, um, dramas, uh, alternative stories to sort of become part of our lives to the point that we sort of lost who we were, or at least could displace who we were, and get involved with a, a long-running daytime soap opera or a, a, a television program, whether it was the episodes were connected or not, it became what I would say an obsessive connection that has really continued unabated. Now it's true, you know, historians of television and uh, will tell you that oh well, you know, TV was so primitive in the 1950s. But yet you had you had you had a uh, a phenomena where 65 or 70 million people stopped what they were doing on the night that Lucy had her baby, <laughs> you know, and you know on that program. And al- although the amount of television options and channels and cable and streaming services have, have replaced that sort of primitive way of looking at things of oh I have to come and watch this show. It hasn't really abated at all the involvement that our society has in these entertainment options that stream into our house and we just, the term couch potato uh, doesn't even do justice to it because even a couch potato gets moved off when you want to sit down or something. Here we're talking about, especially in recent times, of binge watching of people who are involved in these programs, not just in a way that they have their own little fan clubs and they, and they have a, a maniacal connection to this fantasy, but, but the amount of effort and time and what it's taking its toll on worldwide productivity because people are sleeping less, people are almost not involved as much in their real lives and Sam, I know this is really part of a, has now become something bigger, which is, of course, the involvement in, in social media, where it's not a program you're watching, but you're watching everybody else and spending hours and hours. And this has been shown by a number of studies, the increased amount of time that our young people are, are, are connected to their phones and their screens. And this was something I think that was unprecedented, that that is what that was the future was going to be. And talk a little, I mean, this is a big subject, I know. And as you said, explosion of various kinds of multimedia options. There's a um, one major influence on people these days is FOMA, 
FOMA is the acronym for fear of missing out. We always um, had these ideas of bucket lists that we at some point want to go to China, to the Himalayas, to see uh, some kind of guru, to eat, you know, a goulash, whatever it is, things that we have to get done. And um, usually these were kind of something in a remote bucket list, not relevant because you can't go to China. You don't have time for this. You don't possibly have the skills to do that. With the, the access of multimedia, it's brought many more options into the uh, a feasible uh, field. I mean, we could, in fact, see this and experience um, this kind of um, uh, um, phenomenon through a virtual reality, et cetera. So there's a lot of options that are there. And then there is a social anxiety, a FOMA, which is, I am missing out on this. Like, you mean to say you never... Uh, did X or you never did Y, you never parachuted, well, you can parachute, you know, for just one little app that you get and you put on these glasses and you're parachuting and you can visit virtually. And I've taken during COVID virtual visits of various kinds of cities throughout the world that I never did. And that felt fairly real, let me tell you. So the FOMA is something that drives people because it's given them options. I just want to contrast that. In the olden days, even in my olden days, so I would have hours, summers when we couldn't afford to go away, I have had hours of nothingness in the summer or when there were breaks in school. So you have hours of nothingness and there wasn't a notion, what am I missing out? There are no options. Okay, I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. In contrast to say when you're somewhere and you can do 65 different things and there's just a limit to how long I can stay up, how much I can do it. And then, of course, there's a social idea that everybody, 649,842,000 people have already been there, have already done this. And that pressures up. This is superficial. There's something much more basic that's going on that I want to address. Yeah, before you get to that, before you get to that, look. I'm so happy that you were able to put on your virtual uh, visor and be able to become a virtual tourist in places. And I know that that it, it was probably a reflection of the of the brilliance of the programmers who were able to create such a lifelike environment that you could actually enjoy and feel like you were walking through no no not just i feel i direct like for instance going through a certain town in vietnam i can get to a corner turn right turn left go upstairs go downstairs go into a restaurant i can do anything okay yeah all right so like i said uh, it doesn't detract from my point it's it's an incredible accomplishment by those egghead computer geeks who were able to put those pixels and cameras and satellites and bind them all together for Dr. Juni to have his Vietnam walk. Great. But come on, don't you feel that even a boring summer in Sharon Spring, where or wherever it was, or on the streets of Williamsburg, where you're actually talking to people and having to, you know, go into the candy store and, you know, avoid a puddle in the ground that was really happening or shut a window or turn on a fan. That was real life. What you were doing was basically a, a controlled environment. It's true, the, the, the computer programmers had made it fun and interesting, but it's, it, it, was, it was a withdrawn experience, not the experience of, of having a boring summer where you at least met some people, things were happening, 
someone knocked on the door and said, Shmilu, get out of bed. <laughs> there, there was something that was happening. Let me just frame that from a modern perspective. And you can have an essay saying, are your Facebook friends really friends? Are they as friendly as the kid next door who's willing to play checkers with you? Okay, it sounds like a stupid question, but most people would say, yes, I, I just read a, a serious article in the Times with pictures in the last two days about a fellow, I think he's a computer programmer who had an official marriage in Japan with a doll. Okay, in other words, he can relate to this doll and it's, it's some kind of fad, something equivalent to cabbage patch. I couldn't quite figure out what it is. He married the doll and he says, yes, he's very happy. This is his relationship. We're not talking about anything kinky. It's just straightforward. This is his relationship. And I would say for someone who is doomed never to meet another person for whatever reason, you know, having a relationship with a doll is a relationship. For someone who has no real friends, getting 16 friends in the space of a half a day on Facebook is a mighty big accomplishment. Do you have friends? You bet I have friends. I can tell you their names. I even have their pictures. And I even know what kind of movies they like to go to. I know what kind of uh, sports they like. So what's happening in a sense is that there is a diminution in appreciation of interpersonal relationships or at least real or solid into something that's quite superficial. Think of it this way. Think of the kid who does not have the capacity to really have friendships but can exchange, you know, rings or charms in sixth grade with someone else and say, okay, now we're friends. They can accumulate friends, you know, a bunch of them during, during a year. They can have 20 or 30 friends in contrast to a kid who doesn't go for this kind of shallow stuff and really wants to have a friend who Bakoshi makes two friends. Okay, and that's in the sense what's happening, I think, to, to young people these days. They have... Um, been exposed to so much superficial, not only reality of Vietnam, okay, I know there was a game, I know I did not go to Vietnam, but they get exposed to, sure, you can have friends, you can have associates, you can have partners, and the idea is that this is what their world is. So what I want to do is to back up to some major theory, and let me do that for a moment, and that's a theory, the theory is called object relations, and of course, it's, it's based on psychodynamics, which is the only truth in psychology, as far as I'm concerned. And the notion is, by the way, it's a notion that I don't believe in, but it's a notion that's popular with most psychodynamic and and analytic psychologists, that there is one of the basic needs that we have as human beings is to have relationships with others. Now, if you can have all the money, all the fame, all the corporal pleasures, whatever it is in your life, you would feel lacking if you don't have meaningful relationships, okay? It's a theory based on not just some, some, some metapsychology. It's based on experience of people who have worked with individuals who are in trouble. And their conclusion is, and they're fairly decent people. I think they, they make a mistake at some conceptual level, but they feel that a real relationship is really intrinsic. And then, of course, you can say, well, is that satisfied by a Facebook relationship? And most people who have at least one real relationship will say, no, it's not the same thing. It's maybe a substitute. It's something that I can get that's perhaps sort of a relationship with very little expense and, of course, very little risk if you keep the buffers on properly. So I think that's at the root of all this. I mean, I happen not to believe that relationships are an intrinsic part of of, um, the human need. I think they're a tool to get 
to the more basic human needs. Um, so um, I, I, do, I would say from my perspective, it just means that these shallow relationships or superficial relationships don't get you to those needs. But at any rate, what's happening here is that there's a counterfeit relationship, engagement, friendship world out there, which is bearing down on people. And I think one reason it's bearing down on people is because it's not worth it for me to invest six hours, 14 hours and energy and take risks to actually engage someone else in the real flesh when I can have 15 other friends that are so-so. So it's like, you know, so if you can get like you know, some McDonald's burgers in there, but you can get it every day with some ketchup, does that, you know, obviate the need to have a real meal at grandma's? For some people, yes. And they end up living shallow lives and having poor diets. Yes. And as you know, there's going to be the intrusion and the reality of that world, that more boring, less satisfactory world, that world that's what we call not the virtual world, the world of uh, the hustle and the bustle. And because you can't stay with your 3D visor and your earbuds in constantly, you're going to have to navigate, whether it's going to the store or, or going to a funeral or interacting with your parents. Only, or, only if you plan to remain a normal human being. Just a classic experiment is if you take electrodes and implant them into a rat, into their pleasure center, and give them a lever to push it, they'll keep pushing it, not eat, not do any of the body functions, and die. And die at the pedal where they keep pressing it. And the sense that's happening to us psychologically that people are dying on the cross of modern reality, Facebook, um, uh, um, Instagram, Twitter, they're overdosing on it. And some people literally, their, their mental health deteriorates, their physical health deteriorates, tiredness, fatigue, no attention span, no schooling for some people. For some people is the equivalent of like the old junkies we knew that would be drinking or be taking drugs and ignoring their teeth would fall out. One of the ways I recognized always, you know, people were addicted because I see their teeth are not taken care of. And I said, okay, you know, what's going on? And that's what's happening. Some people are really burning out. And I'm going to say people, I'm talking usually about adolescents. Right. And, and we know that the plethora of articles that have been coming out, and I shared some of them with you uh, about teenage depression, and everyone has indicated the corollary between the rise in teenage depression and the mass exposure to iPhones, smartphones, and Facebook, where teens are true, they're in this TikTok virtual world, but they're also checking out what everyone else is doing. Let let me just comment, the depression is happening of two things. So the MO is what's left. It's the missing out that's causing them to be depressed because they say, wow, I don't have X or Y or Z. And mostly, by the way, the profiles that people put up of themselves are fictitious. Sure. They are misleading. And then you see, wow, compare me to someone else, but not to someone else who I know in real class, but to someone else's boasting profile. Of course, I'm not there. That's one of them. The other one is sheer fatigue. If you leave yourself only to, you, you're doing the stuff. If your parents are around, you have your bed covers over your phone. If they're not around, you just go to three, four. I know pretty, what I considered well-adjusted kids who are on till three or four every night. I have no idea who to communicate, but some other ridiculous kids doing stuff that gets away your 
you're sleeping and that makes depression. If you, I keep you up for a number of nights in a row, you will be clinically depressed. So there's two things. There's a psychological explanation and there's a physical cause for the depression. So I'm not surprised that, you know. Right. And part of it, I think, is not only obsessively checking what others are doing, but also the converse of that, which goes together, is upgrading yours, fine-tuning what you have, constantly going back and forth and see who responded. It's, it's sort of a narcissistic involvement. I mean, people value their lives with number of hits. That's their lives. Yes. Now, so this, as we say, it's led to a lot less healthy uh, habits, depression, an inability to... Let's also count just clinically divorces. The more divorces in couples. Wow. You know, it's, it's, a bi- it's a big cause. It's Facebook is a big cause. And, and I've talked to you about this, uh, and I've told you about the incident that occurred that people aren't experiencing those experiences that are part of what we call the real world in the same way either. They have half a, a mind about getting a picture of it and getting a, a snippet of it as part of a little movie that they can now upload to their WhatsApp or to their Facebook or to send to someone else. You, you, we, we don't live in the moment anymore. And I saw this even 20 years ago, almost 12, 15 years ago, even in, in, in the most insular Hasidic world, where I, I talked about this perhaps to you before, that the, the Rebbe known as the Nikolsberger Rebbe in Muncie uh, had been working with a fellow from a South American country. His wife had been working with a, a woman from a South American country. Neither of them were, they were Geretzedic converts. And through the efforts of both the Rebbe and the Rebetzin, this fellow was going to live a pure, beautiful Hasidic life together with this woman who spoke his language, who was also a convert, and their own parents were not in the picture, and they were walked down to the chuppah by the Rebbe and the Rebetzin, respectively, and I happened to have been there, and it was such a, a moving moment for me, and as they came to the chuppah, at the crescendo of, of this beautiful song, the Hasidim not some uh, reporter uh, from, you know, the, the, the Rockland County Times, but the Chassidim, all the Chassidim took their phones out. Maybe not iPhones, but definitely with their ability to take a picture on it. They all wanted a picture. Live in the moment. This is what the Baal Shem Tov envisioned. This is Yafutza Maynasecha Chutza to the greatest extent. This was such, just relish that. It's like it, does, it doesn't happen unless I took a picture of it. Right, has to be validated by electronics. Right, and now, don't you realize that the effort that it took to struggle to find your phone and to place it in a way uh, that your selfie didn't look awkward, all of that took away from your experiencing being uplifted like the Reb and the Rebbitson were for what was going on, right? Could you imagine them taking out their phones? How about the Chassan and Kala taking out their phones, right? I have to tell you, let me give you the equivalent of stuff that I've encountered many years ago before this happened. And let's say there used to be an accusation, let's say, of a woman would say that my husband is inattentive because he happens to be a stand-up comic. And as we're doing anything, he is constantly thinking, what kind of um, routine can I come up with based on this that will impress my audience? Mm -hmm. Okay, And I think we're dealing with something else here, and that's a boogeyman. A a, a boogeyman's been around a lot. It's it's basically, I call it a phobia of boredom. 
I've had many a day where I had nothing to do, where I would sit down with a book and read a book because there's nobody around. There's nobody to talk to. Everybody is out on vacation. And it was pleasant. I basically got to do things. I remember going off as a kid to sit on the beach in Brighton Beach because I had nothing or nobody to talk to. I would bike over to the beach and sit there for hours. And looking back, that's some of the highlights of my teenage years. But what's going on now is since there's so much going on, there's almost a feeling like, mom, so what are we doing today? What are we going to do in the next minute? What am I doing now? Do you have everything programmed? Because has shalom that you should leave me with my schedule not fill in because then I'll be bored. And boredom is like the next step before death. It's that kind of stimulation. And I have to tell you that from a psychoanalytic point of view, it comes from another direction. Basically, we have discomforts and anxieties about ourselves. If we manage to distract our ego the whole day with activities, with problems, with solutions, we don't have to face ourselves. But if I am forced into a room with just myself and I have to look myself in the eye or into the soul, I found really rotten stuff. And that is the psychoanalytic understanding of why people try to avoid boredom. And they'll generally say, you try to avoid boredom if what you're left with is a picture you feel very horrible about. And those people who are in peace with themselves do not feel the fear of actually staying with themselves for a little while, which dovetailing means that most of us these days are very discontent about ourselves. And that can get us back to the original point that most people today have this notion that we don't face up to how everybody else is. We're inferior. And to force to face myself, I would rather just sit there and be counting or playing some kind of battlefield with some unknown mechanical adversary or taking a virtual tour of Vietnam. Because God forbid I should be forced to be sitting with Sam and looking him in the eye and saying, look at you, you're like, pech. Well, look, I think that you could label it an advantage of this addiction is that at least the person, although there's other factors pressing on him or her, there's a sense of agency that it's my profile. It's what I'm tweaking. It's choices I'm making. And in a way, it's the illusory story of myself and maybe a fictional version of yourself because you don't want to face the real version. What I started our you know, the, the blurb or whatever it was that the Matterhorn, as I said, that I tried to build in the beginning, the thing that to me was generating it, and that's why I said it, you and I shared it, was the social phenomena of the 50s and 60s, which was television in your home. And, and I do think that unlike going out to the movies, which was something people were doing in the 20s and 30s and 40s and mass. And it was almost a standard question. Are you going to a movie tonight? Let's go to a movie. That's where people were also bored and looking for something. When you don't have to leave your domicile and you can just absorb those stories and then, Sam, find yourself part of another story. Find yourself completely involved in something else. And as the 50s and 60s advanced and the talents of the television industry were able to produce a more realistic, exciting version. What we have is uh, obviously bemoaned by sociologists then, a generation that is connected to the boob tube, that is part of the vast wasteland, as Marshall McLuhan said, and 
that is something which, as I mentioned before, although the 19th century had a lot of wonderful writing that people were just anticipating and waiting for, and I can't wait for the next installment of the Pickwick Papers or, or Great Expectations or any of those novels of the 19th century, because people were reading them and, and waiting for them. That's a lot different than actually not even have to, having have to read. All you need to do is absorb. And I think that is something that you know, I'd like you to address, where it's not your agency. All you are is having these programs and characters waft into you. And what sort of damage does that do? Again, you know, I hear what you're saying. I just want to stick something in, which I mentioned before, but just to beat it again. There is a problem here in terms of multimedia, idealized, fancy presentations harming people's self-concept and self-esteem. In other words, I can never come up with those lines that Marlon Brando came up with, right? And I can never pull the kinds of shtick that certain kinds of gadget could pull. So you have these people, they are seemingly gifted, they're suave, they know how to do things. I don't know how to do that. It's almost better for me to experience vicariously his life than be faced by mine. And let me just give you a clinical, I've talked to you about this. I want to give you a clinical example that's a little bit off color. Um, People have talked a lot about the scourge of pornography. In other words, what is that doing to people? And all fans from a clinical basis, who cares? What's the big deal? It doesn't hurt anybody. And what I would say is that it hurts the, uh, basically the sexual self-esteem that many of us have and to the point that it sometimes does not allow us to function sexually because what they do in pornography is they come up with a kind of picture of what ideal or proper sexuality is. And it's a totally unrealistic picture. It makes no sense whatsoever from a reality or clinical point of view. But for people who are not in the know that says, wow, okay, so this is what life is about. I don't have this kind of life. I should have this kind of life. Secret in parentheses, nobody has that kind of life. It's all baloney. And when they film it, they film um, incidents that they may take months to, to, to film and they film it in, in the space of no time at all. Like if somebody thinks the real way to be an adventurer in life is to be 007, okay? You're never going to live up to that. So you'll feel that you're totally incompetent and you can't even get out of a situation. You know, your brakes fail, you can't even save it. And this guy, when his brakes fail, not only does he manage to save it, but he saves the world and gets a girlfriend and gets rich and gets famous and goes back in time to have super home, whatever. So that is a machugan of life. And you try, you see that and you say, okay, it's either escape into fantasy land or face myself, which is totally deficient. So I think that's when the multimedia stuff started and it wasn't reality shows. It was dressed up, doctored, and sometimes literally doctored using some kind of visual and auditory aids to resemble X or Y or Z, you're left nowhere. And again, depression comes in. So I, I think I'm actually repeating myself like a broken record, but I think that's the only way to conceptualize all this because otherwise, a rational person would say, what am I doing with this? I would rather talk to the next door neighbor about how to make a cake or talk to him about the, fr- or, or about the rumor that somebody else is, is doing this and shul. That's real. This stuff is a mishigas and they get caught in it. But again, I keep thinking of the rat with the pedal. The little, if you can imagine a dead rat at a pedal, all you did was give him or her a way to stimulate a pleasure center of the brain. And it's not a fantasy. It's just a pleasure center. They're not imagining anything. You're just, ah, that feels good. That feels good. It's like the heroin addict. I don't need to eat. I don't need to sleep. I don't care if I'm on the sidewalk and the car is running over me, but it feels good to me. 
put it this way. I, I think reflection is possible even on an addiction. But I think you could reflect about a book that you have enjoyed reading because you needed to supply a lot of the imagery that the book was suggesting. Great writing isn't about describing a room with every single ceiling tile perfect. Enough is described that the author has, in his gifted way, allowed you an entrance into an idea that they have. It's called projective identification, that you identify and then project the necessary ingredients that you have into the picture. So you're basically relating to a form of yourself rather than something that has nothing to do with you. Right. But but you know that you're reading a Victorian novel. You know that you're reading Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, also, t- many people consider it juvenile fiction. But, you know, he, he knew how to elicit enough in the description of, of what was happening for millions of readers, millions and millions of the English reading populace and in translation beyond to have this character. You talked about Bond, Sherlock Holmes. They had people had Sherlock Holmes was was extremely, extremely popular. Everybody had a, a vision, an idea of who he was by reading it. Now, again, in the 1920s or even earlier, when people uh, when 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 people creating films decided to give you that picture of what Sherlock Holmes looked like. It really, in some ways, chiseled away at the experience of having to read and imagine and really become a partner with the author, which is what every author aspires to happen. Every author realizes that they're not, they don't want to spoon feed completely. They actually get what we would call in Hebrew, nachas, that from their sparse description, People all over are taking something and and making it part of their lives, but also engaging and in some way, I wouldn't call it analytically, but in a way relishing and and, and maybe even going over their mind, Shmilu, the language that was used to actually go back and read the page again and relish, as I said, uh, the way the term was placed. And then somehow another idea is in their mind. I don't see that dynamic happening when everything is really supplied to you, it's almost like, you know, macrobiotics, where the point was chew. You may, you, know, you aren't supposed to swallow before you chew it, you know, a hundred times. Even the Talmudic term girsa comes, as Rashi points out, from crunching it over again and again. And, and, and that activity, movies that are streamed into your living room or, or the television programs of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, and even now, don't the person doesn't do that they just are in a way allowing an absorption to occur and for certain parts of their mind whether it's pornography or exciting spy tactics to just transport them and i think that sam is something that it deadens you as you say it creates that addiction and, and i think in, in many ways has, has turned us into a society that's unsatisfied with their lives. And, you know, when I look at Shmuel, uh, the Haramim that came out in the 19, late 40s and 50s, this is the worst thing, and, and, you know, the, 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 the fight against bringing this technology into your home, we, we look at it and we sort of like say, wow, how ridiculous they were trying to battle against 
something that wasn't perhaps never going to turn back. But don't you think they, they in balance, they were probably right in terms of the damage that, that, is, that has been, that has happened based on this? I think they were right for the wrong reasons, basically. I think what's going on, especially in the from circles, is that they had some kind of a um, bizarre mystical sorcery idea that, for instance, you know, you can't look in the mirror. And the reason you can't look in the mirror is because it was considered something that only a devil can pull off. You know, you have an actual image there. So imagine a voice. How does the voice get her? It has to be sorcery. I think that's where it came from, just based on my cultural understanding. Yeah, I gotcha. I want to throw in something else. And that's some... um, Before you do that, I think it wasn't just, oh, you're looking at an image. Oh, that's like a, I think it's the the boogeyman is the boogie woman. What they were worried about, the long and short of it was, you're going to have. You're bringing the guy into your house. Right. But the salaciously dressed woman, that's what it was really about. Wait a moment. How about radio? I used to hear it about radio too. Okay. Before TV. Yeah, sure. Trafe. Radio's trafe. Except, of course, when you catch the rebel listening to the news. But otherwise, the radio's trafe. Okay. Let me talk about let me talk some, some other point. And I'm really associating to where I thought you were going with your rebel there, with the um, taking out the cameras at the wedding. There is a standard today. Okay. And I've seen this in the press also. For instance, who's a big rebel? The big rebel is the one of whose pictures appear most in the Haredi press. Okay, so it's almost said that you cannot be a rebel unless you have a full-time photographer with you. Okay, so you come like Hanukkah time, you can have 55 pictures of everybody, including Chaim Kanevsky lighting his lights, and Rabbi Landau and Rabbi Edelstein um, saying Sphira. Or Birchas HaChama, oh, you have to see pictures of everybody saying these brachas. It's basically a banalization of what standards are. Like I remember even in my academic career, when they started coming up with, we had ratings every year or every couple of years, especially when you came up for tenure, of what your performance was. And usually it was experts writing and saying, okay, here's the guy's research, here's the guy's scholarship, doesn't make sense. And then one major component of what makes academic excellence were student ratings. Okay, what were student ratings based on? Easy exams, I'm sure, not having to, to, to be there for attendance, um, not having too many requirements, et cetera, et cetera. And they became part and parcel of what the typical evaluation packet was for professors. And I called it, this is banal. This is Meshuga. What are you doing? I, hope, I mean, I was lucky enough that in my days, but they were on the tail end of my tenure, so they didn't affect me. But it was horrible that people actually ended up pandering like Jay Leno. You know, you do things that can get a laugh, but they can get a good response to people. You want to get students to like. I, they used to be common, by the way. I remember this. Uh, this was in the late 80s. It used to be common that a week before evaluation time, instructors would bring in Dunkin' Donuts to the class. It was like absurd. And I used to see it happening. People would do it just to win them over enough to give ratings. And what happens is that people internalize that as well. And that's what I talked about before. Your own standards of whether you're good or not has to do with how many hits you have, how many pictures are made, and how much some undergrad says about how, how you're teaching, let's say, some sophisticated 
aspects of your field, which you expect only graduate students to really understand, that's become the standards. So I thought you were going to talk about that with the pictures. Very common, there is no Rebbe these days who doesn't have multiple pictures out there on the web. Yeah, well, okay, well, you know, you're imparting to these gedolim, you know, some sort of thing that they, oh, I better make sure that my pictures are getting out there. I don't know. I think that's more indicative of a superficial relationship. You know, Chaim Salvechik constantly talked about the difference between assimilation and acculturization. That is the acculturization of the Haredi world to images everywhere. Um, and Rav Chaim, although his father, the stipler, was adverse to it, his rate your teacher's <laughs> file as well, because I taught in a number of high schools that had rate your teachers. It was really, uh, again, I, I didn't really know about it. Did you find it humiliating to find that some sixth grader doesn't like how you teach history? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I, I found it, I, I would say I didn't ever have it as an elementary school teacher, which I didn't do for that long. But as a high school teacher, when I went back and I saw, you know, the ratings uh, of a couple of things that I was doing, it was, you know, on one hand, I was, I don't want to look at that. And yet I found myself drawn to it, despite myself, to see how they were rating me and what they were saying. And it was, in a way, as you're saying, terribly perverted and not perverted in the sexual way it was like what's going on here and that is really part of the the interconnected world we have when these sites which only because of of what the internet was able to make possible if it was just a little underground little magazine that the students were passing among themselves it wouldn't mean much but the fact that it becomes part of a rate your teacher's uh, network that includes, and, and you go to a search list and you can see. But even by physicians, if you look up a physician today on the internet, you will find ratings, ratings by people. You know, what do you think about this particular? Of course, uh, we all guys' ability that. to excise a tumor, and then you have ratings. Like, you don't even know how to spell tumor, you know, but I just wanted to mention before in terms of mag- there are glossy Rebbe magazines that people buy. They cost a lot of money, by the way. It costs like, like $12 for a magazine. And I have read a reliable report that Hasidic courts pay like thousands of dollars monthly to get certain pictures in. You don't get it in if you don't pay. And I am like just a little bit skeptical that this is done at the very lower echelons by some rich stalker of this and this Rebbe who pays without the Rebbe's knowledge. And this, this is like, you know, this is too insidious. These guys have gotten to the point saying, maybe they rationalize it, that it can only be an effective Rebbe if the crowds think I'm, you know, whatever. But, but it's, it's, it's true of the Rosh Hashivas in Bnei Brak too. It's odd. It's a crazy world out there, which, of course, if you begin to understand the topic that we've been discussing, really lowers your um, veneration, to say the least. Look, I remember reading about the quality and amount of television programming in England in the 1960s. And to me, it blew me away how little it was compared to the United States, because there was a surcharge to be able to actually own a television. You have to pay uh, the rights for the connection. And therefore, stations like the BBC and some of the other ones weren't on 24-7. So there was less of it. And if you wanted more, it would cost you. Now, I don't know if it was done for mental health reasons, 
but I think it, it it was beneficial for the you know for that great former empire that they had less, and maybe their less produced more even in terms of quality. Uh, you know, you could point to some of the great Monty Python skits and things like that as of emblematic of hey, less will turn into more, more inventive, brilliant. In the same way, we know Sam that when America tried to turn its sights against an addiction, cigarette smoking, what they ended up doing was taxing the hell out of it to the point that if you really wanted your pack, it was going to cost you way more than it cost to produce it because this way we're going to help the ultimate physical health of American society. Because true, the, uh, the the ones who couldn't stand their lives without smoking would smoke, but there'd be others who would, because they didn't want to pay that amount of money, would refrain. And therefore, cigarette smoking is indeed dropped. Deaths from lung cancer have indeed dropped precipitously. We know that money talks and money restrains. Maybe all these studies, the lack of productivity, the teenage depression and suicides, all those things that are going on, the lack of self-esteem, the, the workforce not getting into it, means that we, what we need to do is limit through financial reasons our access to the type of, whether it's Facebook, whether it's TikTok, whether it's Instagram, or streaming. And that would really force a society, the same way they're doing now, Sam, in New Jersey with paper, with plastic bags. You can't get a plastic bag anymore because they have decided that this is ruining the planet by that plastic that is going to ruin whatever, whether that's right or not. They instituted it. And now you can't get a plastic bag at a grocery store. Maybe the time has come to view the whole gamut of what we talked about today and say, look, with the genie, won't go in the bottle, back but you can only get three wishes a day <laughs> and use them very, very carefully. And otherwise, it's going to cost you way too much. And maybe that can subtly push us back into a more reflective, intelligent and feeling and social society, which will ultimately have health benefits. I know I'm talking about big government like crazy now. But, but maybe that's the only option. So you see, I have two reactions. I think at the micro level, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. So let's say just forget the universal or universal governmental policy from, from a private perspective, just like you can resolve saying cigarettes are not coming to my house. None of my kids can smoke in the house. You can come up with limitations. I can tell you some people have done this like during mealtimes, there are no phones allowed. No self, and even for yourself, you can't do it, even for rings or buzzes. Or let's say you can't check whatever it is, your Instagram, whatever, more than two times a day, four times a day, six times a day, coming up with limitations because realizing because otherwise you're going to get sick or your family members are going to be sick. Or I know in some families, they actually have a um, abstinence day, like on Saturdays, no phones. No, no electronics, period. Or we're going away on vacation, let's say, to, to suburbia for two or three days. We will be out of touch. No contact whatsoever. That's one way. To count on Big Brother, the government, to come up with this is a problem because 
often it is they who profit. They profit on popular. Imagine taking away, uh, you know, Twitter from Trump. Yeah, he's breathing. That's his 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 sustenance. So to say the government is going to limit it, that really means that the government is willing to hurt its own source of support. I, I don't know how, that, I mean, it would be nice if that can happen, unless, of course, be, see, I don't think people take mental health as seriously as they did cancer. Because when you have the cancer data from certain drugs or from smoking, they took it seriously. I don't, I think people say, ah, this is all these poppy hat, you know, uh, yippies, hoppies, yuppies who are talking about this. It's not real. Just get, like if I'm living in Idaho, leave me alone. Get a hold of yourself. Don't give me this stuff that, you know, your mind or whatever. Just But, but as you said, Sam, the mind leads to lack of sleep. Lack of sleep leads to obesity. It leads to diseases. But, but I think the general crowd out there does not realize they don't put mental health on the same uh, category as, as something that's a physical injury, like an amputation. They don't see it that way. Cigarettes, many of them are beginning to realize, look, you know, my uncle is dying. This guy is dying. There's a young guy who's dying. They see it. But here, eh, there was always an excuse. Isn't that much sophistication? I think you just need to have articulate people pronouncing them and, and showing that. Look, you have, to, you have to buy off the uh, parish priests. That's what, no, the local, the local preachers have to come out. And so what about climate change? So many people, and I know you've written about it, and other most people, people don't believe in it. Yeah. The, uh, the general guy out there think it's either a plot by the anti-Trumpists or come on, ask a, a farmer somewhere in Wisconsin. Eh. I don't know. No, no, but definitely, why, why don't we just, just look, we're, we're setting over here the program to fix the world. I would say at the family level, it'd be great if parents can, let's try to save the, the preteens first, you know, let's just start at a family level, cut it out, we can't do it. And also, as a parent, you have to set the example. That's my you point. answer that buzz. You know, my grandchildren have limited screen time. They know when their screen time is, but yet- they realize that what's good for the parents, you know, is being denied them. And I think that they're, they're just waiting for themselves to. It's like the liquor cabinet in the living room. That's right. That's right. And I think that's something. Well, Sam, you know, thanks for hashing this out and uh, we should hopefully, uh, you know, be able to, you know, get the fog out of our mind, the long-term COVID and other things to be able to think clearly, to be involved and now what our listeners have to know is that while we're doing this, we're also checking our phones and answering <laughs> messages, right? <laughs> As we say, take part in everything that you're doing, all these multitasking responsibly, and hopefully you can still be centered on something definitive and significant. Take everybody. We'll catch you perhaps next month again on another episode of Standing in Two Worlds. We will. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 